Well, New Year's Eve. I uh, never thought I'd be preaching on New Year's Eve. But I got, I'm excited about it. I get the last word. <laughs> Always like to get the last word. When the pastor asked me uh, to preach, my thoughts uh, immediately started racing back and forth, uh, to and fro, um, as to what I would say this morning. I started thinking about things the Lord has said to me recently this year, and um, I thought maybe they might be fodder for a sermon. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're too personal. And these things recently were a bit too personal, I thought, for a sermon this morning. Then I also started thinking about New Year's and what it often means to people. The ways that we tend to react to an old year ending and a new one beginning. So I decided to talk to you about three keys to a successful 2024. Everybody would like that, wouldn't they? In fact, there are really three keys to a successful life, but we'll contain it to the next year. I find that people, by and large, are hopeful for a new year. I think that we tend to think that things will be brighter in the future. When we start a new year, it's kind of like having a clean slate. We hope that relationships will be better, that our job will go more smoothly, or perhaps that more opportunity will arise to better ourselves. People often make New Year resolutions. Do, do anyone, does anyone here do that? New Year resolutions? Nobody? Yes. Yes? Yes. One person? <laughs> Actually, I don't either, so. <laughs> I don't know why I don't uh, make them. I... Um, I resolve not. Yeah, I resolve not to. Yeah, I figured if it didn't work out last year, it probably is not going to work out this year either. So. <laughs> but I don't. I don't tend to make them. I don't think people tend to keep them. Actually, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but health clubs know this, right? There's always a special in January. No joining fee. Yes, because <laughs> I love feedback from the audience. <laughs> Maybe an amen or two. Um, yeah, it, because they know that people are going to resolve to lose weight, get in better shape. Something is going to happen. By March, however, these folks will not be in the gym, but they'll still be paying the fees. <laughs> and health clubs know this. Another thing that we often do with a new year is we look at it in review. Uh, we especially see this done in the media, but sometimes it's something we also do personally. Maybe this year hasn't been very good for you, or maybe it's been amazing. Maybe this past year has been one of lost. Maybe you've lost a loved one, or a relationship has been broken. Maybe you lost a job or missed an opportunity that could have changed your life. Maybe that resolution you planned to keep this year, apparently not, 
didn't quite make it to the end. On the other hand, maybe this year has been amazing. You got that promotion at work. Maybe you got married or have made plans to get married. Maybe you had a new addition to your family, or by God's power, you have overcome a health crisis. For Jolene and me, we got a new granddaughter. Everything else pales into insignificance. Those of you who have 10 or 15, you know about that. This is our first. The other day, I, I saw a short video, and of course there are several of those these days. That was really quite funny. It was about 2023 in review. It was a guy who was playing both characters, and it was a discussion between 2023 and 2024. And 2023 was trying to give a little preview to 2024, and it wasn't pretty. In fact, 2024 (laughs) was quite frightened by the prospect and was asking 2023, please don't leave. Please don't leave. Unfortunately, 2023 had to go, and 2024 was left on its own. As I watched the video, I realized how many things I had forgot. I had forgotten that it happened in 2023. We had double-digit inflation and interest rate hikes. The first anniversary of the Ukrainian war, which we followed all year until the worst terrorist attack in Israel's history supplanted it in the news. We had the tragic implosion of the Titan submersible, which killed five people at the site of the Titanic. Let's not forget the tensions with China over the high-altitude balloon that they used to spy on us. Of course, there was the political debacle in the House as the Republicans played musical chairs with the Speaker of the House. You've gotten really quiet. Sadly, 2023 saw more mass shootings in the United States than there are days in the year. On a lighter note, after 60 years, I saw Barbie become a movie. I'm sure we could all think of several other things I failed to mention, but you are at this point probably already depressed. Well, remember, I have to bring you down in order to lift you up. So, you're welcome. (laughs) Actually, I think how we see 2023 and our lives in particular is all about perspective. We all know the old adage about whether one sees the glass half full or half empty. Honestly, I tend to be someone who sees the glass half empty. Hence, all my review of the year was negative. (laughs) My wife is the opposite, of course. I prefer to call myself a realist rather than a pessimist. But what about God? Is he an optimist or a pessimist? Neither. Thank you. I think most people would say he's an optimist. He is the God of hope. He's the one who brings joy out of sorrow, light into darkness, and salvation where there is condemnation. 
However, I would say that God is actually both or altogether something else. After all, he made us, and he made some of us optimists and some of us realists. Actually, maybe we should just say that God sees things as they are and makes them what he wants them to be. He's completely good, all-knowing, and all-capable. And when you can change any circumstance to be what you want it to be, then you don't have to choose sides. This is the great hope that we have, that no matter our circumstances, God will make them be whatever he wants them to be. There's no promise here. We won't have trials and tribulations. The promise is, even in the midst of them, God is present. The other day I saw a post on Facebook about the Gaza conflict, and the question on the post was, where is Jesus in all of this? It's a valid question. The captioned response was, he's under the rubble. Without taking any sides, I do think there's a lot of truth in that statement. He's under the rubble. We tend to think that the presence of devastation, terror, suffering, starvation, and death means that somehow God is missing. He's not. He's actually right in the midst of all of it. In 2016, May 28, 2016, I had a heart attack. I don't know if I've ever, ever told you this story before, but if I have, forgive me, I'm going to tell you again. And it was a Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. I had just finished three weeks of summer school at North Central University, and that's enough to give anyone a heart attack. And I started having uh, some chest discomfort on Saturday morning. actually didn't know what it was. I had never had a heart attack before. have a history of heart disease in my family. My father died at 49 with a heart attack. I was 56 at the time. And I didn't know what it was. It was coming and going, that kind of thing. And finally, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, it came and didn't go. I was at Starbucks in Target with Jolene and another person. We were having coffee, and I turned to Jolene. I was actually fidgeting in my chair because I was very uncomfortable. It hurt. And I turned to Jolene and very calmly said, I think you better take me to the emergency room. I'm not a real emotional person. And uh, I got up, and I was so lightheaded, and I didn't know if I was going to make it to the car. I got to the car, she rushed me, I mean rushed me. We were doing 60 miles an hour down Plymouth Road. We should have called an ambulance, I know, didn't think about it. Believe me, never had a crisis like this before in my own life. We got to, to West Health in Plymouth and got to their emergency room. I stumbled up to the desk. I was leaning on the desk and I said to the woman at the desk, I think I'm having a heart attack. She said, can I see your ID? I kid you not. I kid you not. 
So I struggled to get my wallet out to give her my driver's license before I collapsed on the floor. And long story short, we got downtown to Abbott and they put a stent in my heart. But what I want to tell you is this. As we pulled into the parking lot at Target, before all of this transpired, my cell phone rang. And I don't normally answer numbers I don't know. Believe me, I get so much spam, I don't even answer them. So if you call me, leave a voicemail, I'll call you back. So I, but I, for some reason, I answered it. And it was a colleague of mine from North Central University who had retired, hadn't talked to him probably in a year and a half or, or so. Dan Rector, some of you may know him. He was a children's ministries professor at North Central University for many, many years. And he said to me, Phil, are you all right? I said, hey, Dan. Yeah, I'm fine. He said, I was praying this morning, and the Lord brought you to my mind. And I said, well, yeah, I walked into Target, and I'm standing there, and we talked probably five minutes. Said, yeah, I'm just fine. Five minutes later, I was being rushed to the emergency room. And when I was laying in the back of the ambulance as they were rushing me downtown to the Minneapolis Heart Institute, I'm laying in the back of that ambulance, and I'm in a lot of pain. They kept asking me, what's your pain level? 10, 10, 10. If the scale went higher, I would have told them. They were pumping everything in me they could to ease the pain and trying to get me to the hospital as quickly as they could. And I'm laying on the gurney, my first time ever in my life in an ambulance. In fact, the first time ever in my life being in the hospital since I was born. I'm laying there, and there's this peace on me. And I think to myself, well, I'm ready to go. I thought, you know, these thoughts were going through. I don't need to forgive anybody. I don't need to ask forgiveness for anything. And so I was just laying there, and I was like, okay, well, I'm ready to go. And this thought came to me. Dan Rector. Dan Rector called me. And I thought to myself, you know what? God wouldn't put me on Dan Rector's heart if he wasn't going to do something about my situation. He didn't have Dan pray for me if he wasn't going to do something about my situation. And I just knew I was going to be all right. I was in a lot of pain, but I knew I was going to be all right. And I was, because God was with me in the middle of it. Now, sure, I could ask and have the thought of asking, why in the world would you let this happen in the first place? If you're going to tell somebody to pray for me, if you're going to be with me, why did you let it happen? I don't have an answer to that, except that we live in a world where those kinds of things happen. Because this world is cursed with sin. But Jesus Christ became a curse for us when he hung on that cross. And we can be delivered from that curse. We're living in the already and the not yet. We're living in that place where resurrection power is real and present. But we're not there yet where it's fully available. And so sometimes we go through things, but the hope is that Jesus is in the midst with us, that he's under the rubble, that he's with us. 
I noticed that the psalmists often ask where God is. Have you noticed that when you read through them? I have a psalm every couple of days in my reading plan, my Bible reading plan. Which, by the way, I'll put a little, little plug-in for the Bible Project reading plan. I did that reading plan uh, last year. Absolutely fabulous. I really recommend it if you want to do that this year. But there's a psalm every other day, and I'm reading through the psalms, and I've noticed they're always griping, complaining. And I thought, you know what? That's because they're real, right? This is life. This is life. I had a, a, a Jewish friend, a Messianic Jew, who was a, a friend, colleague of mine in the PhD program at Fuller. She's in Israel now. But she used to tell me, it's okay if you want to yell at God. They, they have that freedom, right? Because they, they have the psalmist, and they, they see, you know, you can yell at God. Where are you, God? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Do you hear me? Do you hear the cry of my heart? But one of the things I notice about these psalms, they often end in praise. Because somehow the psalmist knows, even though you're feeling that way, even though you're feeling that despair, you're feeling that difficulty, you're you're going through that trial, somehow they know that God, Yahweh, is there. And he's with them, and then he will come through and he will deliver them. And so I want to give you, this morning, I know it probably doesn't sound like it, I want to give you some hope. I want to give you three keys to successful 2024. And believe it or not, these three things are found in the book of Revelation. What better book to be in at the end of the year, right? It's the book of Revelation. So before you think that I'm going to be more (laughs) depressing by going into the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation is actually a book of hope. It really is. I'll show you in a minute how it is, but it's a book of hope. We often think of it as destruction, and you had dragons and beasts and and false prophets and plagues and all kinds of crazy stuff that seems to happen, things that we don't always understand, and most of us avoid because we don't know how to understand it. But actually, the book of Revelation is a book of hope. Revelation 1 1 says that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ that he gave to his angel to give to his servant, John. So Jesus is giving us this revelation, he's giving it to us. Some people argue that because revelation, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ can mean the revelation of Jesus. Or it can mean the revelation that belongs to Jesus. Well, either way, it's good. But it comes from Jesus. It's a message to the church. Seven of them, but the truth is, it's to the entire church. Those seven churches are just symbolic. They're just part and parcel of the whole. That's one of the things you have to remember when you read the book of Revelation. That it's not literal. Everything is said in images. You have, to, you have to look at it and see that and see that nothing is really said straightforward. Take, for example, the rider on the white horse. He has his name tattooed on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John doesn't say, oh, Jesus is coming on a white horse. 
He's on a white horse, and he's got a bunch of crowns on his head, and he's got king of kings and lord of lords, and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. So it's all symbolic. It's all symbolic. It's imagery to tell us that we have hope. So there are three phrases, three verses in the book of Revelation that contain these three keys that I want to give to you. And I would like for you to turn to Revelation chapter 4 in your e-Bible or your real Bible, your, <laughs> your paper Bible, if you'd like. Revelation chapter 4 is where we'll go first. I'm going to focus for a moment on Revelation chapter 4 verse 2, but I will start reading in, in verse 1. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. I remember the first time I read this verse, chapter 4, verse 2. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And it, it caught my attention. It's, you know how sometimes passages will jump out at you by the Holy Spirit. So as many years ago, I was reading the book of Revelation, and this passage jumped out at me. And I paused for a moment, and I thought to myself, wow. The first thing, so John's invited up to, up to heaven. This is the beginning of the Revelation. Sure, there's been seven messages, and of course there was, there's, there's been some uh, vision experiences in chapter 1, the vision of Jesus. But this is the first, really the beginning of, of the, the long series of visions that take place in the book of Revelation. And the very first thing that John sees is a throne with somebody sitting on it. And when I read that many years ago, it was so encouraging to me because I thought, wow, you know, no matter what I go through in life, there's going to be one thing that's true, is God's going to always be on the throne. And this, this book, as I said to you, is a message to the church. It's a message of hope. It's a message of perseverance. John has given seven messages to seven churches in the province of Asia and the Roman Empire in the first century. Every one of those churches is facing something, either internal or external pressures. Some of them are, are, are facing heretical movements in the midst of them. Others are facing persecution on the outside. But every one of them is off, they're offered hope. They're offered a promise that if they will overcome, they will receive. This is the message of hope for the church. Not that they won't go through things. Not that they won't have difficulties. Not that they won't have persecution. But the fact that Jesus is present under the rubble. Jesus is there. Jesus is there in their midst. In fact, he tells them that. I'm here. I'm standing in your midst. That's the way John portrays him as one who is standing in the midst of the candlesticks. 
the seven candlesticks that represent the seven churches he's talking to. Go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. Verse 10. On the Lord's day, John says, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. This is the same voice that he hears in chapter 4 inviting him up to heaven. And John is told to write on a scroll what he sees and send it to the seven churches. But then if you skip down in chapter 1 to uh, right around the end of verse 17. Listen to what this one, this person says who has a trumpet. Who's been described in such detail, we have no doubt as to who he is. He's Jesus, the revelator. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Just reading that, I want to say to you, you can relax. Because whatever faces you in 2024, God is on the throne. And Jesus holds the key. So the first key I give you here is that remember God is on the throne. He's always there. He's always present. And he controls everything. He is the first and the last. The living one. So John gets invited up to heaven. And as I said in chapter 4, the, verse, the first thing that he sees is that God is on the throne. And that God is in control. And this is really the message to the churches and to you and me. You have to remember that this book was just like all the other books in the Bible, right? The other 65 books. This book was written not just for those seven churches, but it was written for you and me. Because God's word is ageless and timeless and and is always uh, present in speaking to us. And I just find that, it, it, that it's interesting that between the first chapter and the fourth chapter, you have sandwiched those messages to the seven churches who are, are, are in great difficulty. Great difficulty. Sandwiched, sandwiching in between, sandwiching those messages is the picture of Jesus who is the first and the last the one who was dead and who now lives, the one who holds the keys to death in Hades. And he's inviting his servant John to come up and see. Come and see. And the first thing John sees is that there's someone on the throne. In fact, if you go in and read the rest of Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, it is a magnificent and grand picture of the throne room of God. And there's a reason for this. The first, the very first message to the churches, the very first revelation that Jesus wants to give to his churches is that I'm on the throne 
and then I control everything. Because there are going to be some things that are going to unfold in this book, in the book of Revelation, that aren't going to be very good. They're not going to be very good for the saints, and they're not going to be very good for the earth dwellers. Because you see, Revelation is divided up into two groups. There's the people that belong to God and the people that dwell on the earth. There's the pe- there are the people that are sealed by God who have the name of, of Jesus and the name of the Father written on their forehead, and there are those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead. And the end of those two groups is very different. So the message to the churches then in these two chapters is that God is in control. You get a picture not only of the throne room of God, of the worship of God, you get a picture of the lamb, first the, first the lion and then the lamb, who's in the midst of the throne, who's in control, who gets worshipped because he's the only one worthy. He has paid the price. And he's the only one worthy. He has purchased for God from every tribe, every language, every people group, everyone. There isn't anyone left out. There aren't Palestinians left out, right? There aren't Israelis left out. There aren't Ukrainians and Russians left out. There aren't, there's nobody left out. Jesus purchased everybody. He purchased a people for God, and he made them priests. He made them a kingdom, and he made them priests for our God, and that they might reign with him. And so this is a book for everybody, and it's a book of hope for everybody. And the number one message of this book, the beginning message of this book, is remember God's on the throne. And if you can remember that in 2024... If you can remember that the rest of your life, that God is on the throne, tell yourself in 2024, when you face a difficulty or a challenge, say to yourself, relax, God's on the throne. That's your phrase for the year. Relax, God's on the throne. All right, let's go to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to go deeper. Well, trying to scroll through here. I guess I should probably just... This is the bad thing about using electronic stuff. Okay, here we go. Revelation chapter 14, right at the beginning. I'll start reading in verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name, remember, written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. 
They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among humankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, there's a lot here, and I'm not going to try to unpack all of it because we don't have that kind of time. But these 144,000, who are they? We saw them in chapter 7 when they were sealed. It was 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. Of course, the list of the tribes there is an unusual one, so it's hard to know exactly where that came from, but that's not the point, really. In chapter 7, it's 12,000 who are sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel, but then later in the second half of the chapter, they become everybody. John says, and I saw before the throne those who had come out of the great tribulation, and they were from every tribe and language and people and tongue. They were everybody. Because, again, as I said about the book of Revelation, it's symbolic. And 144,000 is a multiple of 12, isn't it? 12 times 12 times 1,000. Because this group of people represent the people of God in Revelation. And you get the second description of them in Revelation chapter 14 that's very interesting. Well, you see that they're all virgins, which uh, I don't think the Revelation's trying to tell us that we all need to be in that spot to follow Jesus. Because it's symbolic. It's about purity. It's about obedience. But the phrase that I really want to highlight to you, because I really think this is the key, the second key, that I want to tease out of the book of Revelation, is in verse 4. One of the characteristics of the 144,000, and keep in mind that these are all the saints, representation of all the saints, the believers, is that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I noticed that phrase a while back, and I, again, I paused. I paused, and I thought, wow, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And the Lamb goes some difficult places sometimes. The lamb, in fact, has been slain. He looks, John told us that in chapter 4. He, uh, chapter 5. The, the, the lamb looks like he's been slain, but he's alive. And we follow the lamb wherever he goes. So my second key is love Jesus above all else. Love Jesus above all else. I think that this phrase... They follow the lamb wherever he goes is the essence of discipleship. A few, oh, about a year, maybe a little more ago, two years probably, I was um, going through, Jolie and I were going through a difficult time. And um, I was reading my Bible one morning and I spotted something in the book of Matthew. It's the story about the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. It's a story that's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Matthew, it's just a little bit different, and that's what caught my attention. They, in, in the other gospels in Luke, 
And in Matthew, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. So they get in the boat, and they go to the other side. And in the middle of the trip to the other side, they face a storm. One of the worst storms of the disciples' lives because they thought they were going to die. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. Why? Because he said to himself, relax, there's somebody on the throne. True. It's the Father. He knew the Father was going to take care of him because the Father's still on the throne. The Father was going to take care of him. He wasn't worried. But in Matthew, it says something just a little bit different. Jesus doesn't say, let's go to the other side. Jesus just gets into the boat. And Matthew says, and the disciples followed him. And I was reading that and it just caught my attention. And I, again, I, I do that a lot when I read the Bible. I pause. I pause and I thought, they have no idea what's getting ready to face them. They have no idea that they're going to face one of the worst storms in their lives. They just follow Jesus. He got in the boat. We get in the boat. And in that difficult moment in my own life, I thought to myself, you know, that's it. That's, that's what I did. God said, do this. And I did it. And it wasn't easy. And I face, I'm facing some storms. I face storms in my life. Obedience isn't always easy. Obedience is never a guarantee of an easy life. Look at Jesus. He was obedient. The writer of Hebrews says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Obedience isn't an easy life. The guarantee, again, is that Jesus is with you. He might be asleep in the back of the boat and you feel like you got to give him a little nudge. That's what the psalmists do. They give him a little nudge. Where are you, oh God? Why aren't you hearing my prayers? But he got up and he rescued them. And they got to the other side. That's discipleship. You just get in the boat. Jesus got in the boat, you just get in it. Don't know what's going to happen when you cross over, but you just get in it. You follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Jesus told the large crowds that followed him in Luke chapter 14 that unless you hate your mother, your father, your wife and children, you cannot be my disciple. He wanted to thin the crowd out because following him is not always easy, but it's worth it. And he's always there with us. Jesus is under the rubble. The third and final key I just want to share with you is found in Revelation chapter 21. I hope after this that you will look at Revelation very differently. Maybe even read it. Even if you don't understand it. In Revelation 21, I want to highlight in on verse 3, but I'm going to start reading again at the beginning of the chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself 
will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Wow, praise God. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Amen. My third key is know that God dwells with us. That God dwells with us. In verse 3, John writes, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Really, his people. His dwelling place is now among the people. This is God's goal. This is the end, of course. But it's all actually already started. We already have the presence of God with us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. One of the things I noticed one day about this passage is that the word here, uh, dwelling place, <clears throat> in the NIV, in Greek is skene. <clears throat> skene. And it's... Um, it's the word for tent or tabernacle. It's the same word that is used in the Old Testament, in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament to talk about the tabernacle of God, which was in the midst of Israel. The location of the presence of God. The tabernacle was built exactly according to a plan that was given to Moses by God because the tabernacle was a, is a replica of God's throne room. And we see that throne room revealed to us in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. In John chapter 1... When John talks about the, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, it is that same word again, skene. Literally, Jesus came down and pitched his tent among us. And suddenly the presence of God, which was in the tabernacle, in the middle of the camp of Israel in the wilderness, has, become, has come down in human form. The presence of God is down now in human form, and he walks around among us, among his people. He was in the midst of Israel as the presence of God, the word of God. By this time, they had the temple, of course. It was built first by Solomon and then rebuilt again later. And Jesus said to them, you destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Because the temple of God was upon, uh, among them. The tabernacle of God was dwelling in their midst. God's presence. You see, God's been working at this for thousands of years to be united with us in holy matrimony. Right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. To be united with us as his bride. And that plan all along. So Jesus came. And he dwelt among us. And then he returned to the Father and he gave us the Holy Spirit. To live inside of us because you and I collectively and individually are the temple of God. We have the Spirit of God made personal 
to us through the Holy Spirit. But our goal, of course, is to be in the presence of God forever. So this year, when you pass through this year, good or bad, know that God is present, that he dwells in you, that he dwells in your midst. There isn't anything that you will face in your life that you cannot overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God. No matter what you face next year, in 2024, you take God with you. Jesus is indeed under the rubble. But he's also in the happy places, in the good places, in the joy. He's the one that puts the joy in the darkness. He's the one that saves us and brings us hope. As, as the psalmist says, um, they go forth sowing in tears, but they return with a harvest of joy. And that's what I pray for you in 2024. I pray that you'll return. Your, your return will be a harvest of joy. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to ask the prayer team if they would come. I don't know where you are in life. You know, everybody's in a different place. And um, it doesn't really matter that it's the last day of the year because things just go on as they always have sometimes. Tomorrow, maybe things will change, maybe they won't. But I can assure you that these things will be true. That God is on the throne. That God is present with you. And that if you'll love Jesus above everything else, you might not always have an easy life. It may not always be easy. But God will be with you. And and he will deliver you and strengthen you and keep you. So I just want to pray a prayer over you this morning. And if you need prayer this morning, there are those up front who are willing to pray with you. And I pray that if you don't know who Jesus is, if you've never met him, that you'll make that commitment this morning. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We just simply have to confess our sins and accept who Jesus is. And I guarantee if you do that, this will be the greatest year you'll ever live. Father, I pray this morning for your blessing on every person who's here, for your strength and courage for them in the coming year. I thank you because I don't need to ask you. I just have to thank you that you're going to be with each and every one of us. I thank you that you're on the throne and that no matter what we face, no matter what we have to deal with in the future, we know that we can relax because God is on the throne. We thank you, Lord, that you're in our midst, that your presence dwells in us, that you keep us by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, just your blessing on each and every person here today, that as they go forth, they will be blessed in these coming days, this coming year that you would give them strength and courage, that you would bless their families, that you would watch over them, 
and keep them by your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.